Uh, so we're in part seven uh, today of our series on the Lord's Prayer, um, and we are attempting to tackle the knotty and difficult subject of temptation. Uh, temptation is on the agenda today, and uh, we're going to speak into it. And I wanted to uh, start the service today with um, a little film clip. Uh, it's by a, a guy called Darren Brown. Now, Darren Brown is not a Christian. Uh, he's, an, he's a secular guy. He's an illusionist and a, and a performer, uh, and he brings different things to, uh, to our screen sometimes. Uh, now, this thing that he's uh, filmed, uh, he, he opens it up and describes something called the power of negative suggestion. Uh, now, that's kind of like sort of modern-day speak for something that we as Christians uh, would call temptation. We would call that temptation. Uh, the power of something to want us to do it, and then we toy with it in our minds, um, and then we go ahead and do it, even though we know it's the wrong thing, uh, and then we regret it later. And so what Darren Brown has got done, he's done a sh just a short little minute and a half film of um, some kids in a classroom, and what he does is he goes into the classroom and he puts a, a box on the table with a red button on it. And he says to these little kids, now, don't touch the red box, don't touch the button, okay? And it's just like, it's so, so funny. Uh, so have a watch of the screen and see what happens. Throughout life, we are surrounded by negative suggestions, and these start early in our childhood when we're told, don't do this and don't do that. The point is, the more we try not to do something, the more likely we are to give in and do it. Children are particularly prone to negative suggestion, and to show you this idea in its simplest form, I made a box that has a big red button on the front. We set the box up in a classroom we'd rigged with hidden cameras, brought in some midgety things to help out, and told them not to touch it. You've got to guard this. It's a box with a surprise in. Okay? Will you guard it for me? Don't look inside the box. Don't open it. So my negative suggestion there, don't look inside the box, is designed to sit heavily on their minds and stoke their curiosity. We can't look in it. Don't press that little button. The idea goes round and around in their heads, and the more they try not to open it, the more difficult it is to resist. That is such a brilliant illustration of temptation. Uh, and what you'll notice in, in the journey to that, when there was a pair of them, they kind of egged each other on, didn't they? And then did you see at one point, like, he was holding her finger? And like, so that, like, if there was a, a, a follow-up later, it's like, oh, no, her finger touched the button. Uh, and that's called diluting responsibility, isn't it? Yeah. And then, and then also the reactions on the kids' faces when the box went off, and there was, like, flour... And just, it was a completely irreversible mess, wasn't it? And the shock on their faces. Um, and then, of course, also, there's the excuses and the rationalizations that follow the event. Uh, did you notice that one of the little kids said, and a hand came out? <laughs> yeah, your hand. Yeah, very, very funny, very funny. Uh, just a really helpful little picture 
uh, of what temptation is like. Uh, you know, temptation is knowing that there's something that you shouldn't do, that you know that is wrong, and then you give in uh, and you go ahead and do it. Uh, so we're looking at temptation today. It's part seven of the Lord's Prayer series. Um, and uh, I, I want to open with an illustration today for how, how our thought life starts to get seeded with the wrong stuff. Uh, so I'm in a traffic jam uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm driving through Lazelles in Birmingham, and I'm in this long queue of traffic waiting to get through a T-junction. At the end of this T-junction, on the other side of the street, uh, there's a tall church tower. And I don't know about you when you're waiting in a traffic jam, what you do, but sometimes I look around me and I look at the buildings, I look at like, how they were constructed, maybe who, I think about who financed this, uh, how long did it take to build. I just kind of ask myself questions about it, and um, we're, cr- we're kind of creeping forward in this traffic. And I notice with this, with this church building at, by this T-junction, there's this tower there, and at the top of the tower, there's this like a, an arched window. And I'm looking really closely at this, and underneath the arched window, I notice a, a kind of an arc of moss kind of coming down, like a green arc underneath the window. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, how has that got there? Because the bricks on either side, all around the rest of this church tower, they're kind of like a kind of gray-brown color. They're kind of clean. You know, there's not a problem here, really. But this, this, under this window, there's this kind of mossy arc just sort of like there. And it's quite subtle. You can't really see it that overtly, but it's there. And I'm thinking, how did that get there? And then I started to work out why it, it, it appeared. Basically, as I was watching, you could see pigeons appearing and, and kind of coming and landing in a top recess above the window, like high up. They were roosting there or on some ledges. And I worked out that what was going on was because they were roosting there, they were kind of then producing droppings, and those droppings were falling on the sill of this large window. And then when the rain falls on the edge of the sill, it's washing down the nutrients onto the brick. And then, of course, the moss is starting to grow because it's got like fertilizer being poured down the bricks uh, by the, the droppings of these birds. Now, I appreciate you didn't come to church this morning to hear about bird poo, okay? I, I, I just want to hold that there for a minute. However, as I was sitting in the traffic and thinking about my message, I suddenly realized this is a brilliant illustration of how our thought life gets seeded with the wrong stuff. Uh, what, we, what, we, what goes on in our minds is we have lots and lots of thoughts all fluttering around, and some of them are good and some of them are bad, uh, but it's, it's what we do with those thoughts that really counts. If our thoughts are fluttering around and then we allow them to perch and to roost on a ledge somewhere in our spirit, in our mind, in our heart, then that thought is kind of beginning to take hold, isn't it? It begins to live there, or it can do. Um, uh, and and that's, a, that's a little bit concerning if what's being produced by those thoughts is not very nice. Uh, and hence the idea of, you know, the, the bird droppings is not a very nice idea. But then the moss is starting to grow in an unwanted way as a growth off of the fact that the birds have been allowed to roost there. And it's the same with our thoughts. If we allow our thoughts, uh, to, certain thoughts to settle, uh, then what will happen is those thoughts will take hold. And then before we know it, we've got some things kind of beginning to appear in the building of us, which maybe we didn't really fully want. Maybe that wasn't quite the intention we had, but because we permitted those thoughts not to just flutter, but to settle, we're now in a little bit of difficulty, aren't we? Um, what we need is we need like the spiritual equivalent of those bird spikes. Have you ever seen those? You know, like if you walk up into the center of town, you've got those, those big council buildings, and you can see they've got, they're like bird spikes. They're kind of like this. They're lots and lots of little spines. They point upwards, and they put them on ledges and under bridges and on high places so that birds trying to land kind of arrive at the spikes and then go, oh, I've got nowhere to put my, 
my little feet and I'm going to have to fly away again. And so they flutter a bit and then they disappear. What we need, Christians, church, what we need is we need spiritual spines and bird spikes, don't we? To stop our thoughts settling in and fluttering down and becoming a permanent part of our, man, of our mental landscape. We need spiritual little bird spikes in our minds. Now, listen, it's not wrong to have the occasional thought that isn't brilliantly holy. I think we all have that, don't we? It's what we do with it, and it's whether we perpetuate it or not. Um, and actually, if we deal with it quickly, the theme of one, of one of the themes of today's message is if we deal with it quickly, it will disappear quickly, and it will be much easier to manage. Uh, and that seems to be the kind of the deal with temptation. The moment you get, you get tempted, deal with it quickly. Have a, have a little spine there, a little uh, bird repeller thing going on, so that the thoughts uh, flutter away again. Okay, so that's an opening uh, illustration for you, just to kind of get your head round that we need bird spikes, but in the spiritual sense. Now, unsurprisingly, the Bible gives us some fantastic bird spikes that we can use. It gives us some really great um, tools and equipment spiritually to be able to send those thoughts away again. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to um, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 12 and 13. Just briefly, now this isn't the core of where I'm going with my message today, but I wanted to set out for you um, a particular set of verses. It's this one, and also the verse from the Lord's Prayer that talks about temptation, because they give us five specific things that we can uh, use or lean on uh, or, or deploy to help us avoid temptation. Uh, they really do help us in a great way. Let me take you through uh, what that verse or what those verses say. Let's, let's just pick that up. So 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13, uh, from the, uh, the standard, the CSB version, says this. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. So that's the passage from Corinthians. Now let's just jump across to Matthew 6, verse 13, which is the part of the Lord's Prayer that we're looking at today. And it says, and do not bring us into temptation. And then it goes on to say, but deliver us from evil. And that's the final part of our series. And that, we're going to conclude with that one next week. Uh, and I'm very excited to say we've got a very great speaker coming as a guest speaker next week, a guy called Dr. John Andrews. He's got a PhD in theology. He's a super brainy guy, great communicator, really looking forward to him being with us. And he's going to unpack how you can resist the evil one. And we're going to look at that next week. So don't miss that. It's going to be really, really good. He's in both of our services next Sunday. But we are looking at do not bring us into temptation. So the five things out of these verses are, are as follows. Number one, and you should be able to follow these along in your YouVersion Bible event, hopefully if you've got the YouVersion app and you can see all the notes there. Number one, be careful that you don't fall. It seems like a very obvious instruction, doesn't it? But it's be careful that you don't fall. And I'd put it to you that it's not the times when we're low, actually, that we fall, because we know when we're low that we're in a, in a position of danger. You know, if you're really low, or you're hungry, or you're angry, or you're tired, uh, you're feeling lonely, you know, you know, you're down, perhaps you're even struggling with some depression, you know that you've got a lot of attack coming your way. You kind of are in it. And in a sense, temptation is almost like par for the course. You're like, yeah, okay, I, can, I, I get that. What happens with temptation that is so insidious and so difficult is it catches you when you're up. It catches you when you're in a good space. When you're, you know, bristling with confidence, when you're excited with a success, when you've just had a victory... You are on top of the world, and suddenly it gets in there. 
You have this thought and you act on it out of impulse and you're, and you're tempted and you do the wrong thing. So the, Paul is very plain in his letter to the Corinthians, be careful that you don't fall. Be careful. And that applies all the time. As Christians, we have to be on our toes about temptation all day long or night long, just all the time. Never assume it's completely gone away. If Jesus got tempted, then we'll get tempted. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, uh, it says this strange phrase. It says, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. That's a strange phrase. What it's basically saying is all temptations are common to millions of people. We all experience the same kinds of temptations. And in the story we're going to unpack in a little while, we're, we're looking at a story where in a marriage, somebody fancies somebody who's not in the marriage, like they don't fancy their spouse, they fancy someone else, uh, but they don't deal with it and nip it in the bud like millions of us do. Because when you're married, it's not impossible that momentarily you see somebody you think, oh, they're, they're good looking or they're, you know, they're attractive, but you don't dwell on that and you don't give it space and time. You move on quickly, you nip it in the bud. And millions of people understand how to make sure that they're disciplined in their minds about that. That's just what we do. So why has Paul put that in there? He's put it in there because he's saying the temptation that you might be struggling with is not unique to you. There's this peculiar lie of the enemy that the thing that you're struggling with temptation-wise is unique to you. No, it's not. You share it with millions of other people through time and right now. The, whatever you're tempted by, loads and loads of other people are tempted by. And so you're, you're, you're not uniquely depraved, as the devil will try and tell you. You know how the, 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 uh, the, the temptation circuit goes? Oh, you have these thoughts, and then the devil comes in and goes, Wow, that's foul, Nick. Why do you even think that? You are such a low Christian. And he gets in there, and he uses that. And he tries to tell you wrong stuff. No, that's not true, because the temptations we all face are common to people, full stop. You are not unique in what you're being tempted in. You might think you are, but you're absolutely not. You're absolutely not. And so that's, really, that's actually quite encouraging that we're all in the same temptation boat together. We're not isolated. We all struggle with the same stuff. That's really what's going on with that verse. So that's number two. Number three, God actually places limits on how much he lets you be tempted. What that says to me is there's no temptation that's too strong for you to resist. In other words, you're not going to get flattened by a temptation, like a great big elephant coming out of the jungle and kind of stamping on you, and you just go, oh, no, that's not how it works. Every single temptation you face, you have the power in God to beat it. You absolutely do. That's a truth in the Bible. In fact, that's a promise you can take to the bank. It's not a promise to test too much, though. It's a promise to actually just go out the door really quickly in the first 10 seconds. I think it's really helpful to do that. So God places limits on how much he lets you be tempted, and he never puts you in a situation where you'll be tempted too much. He just doesn't do that. So that's number three. Number four, there is always a way out of temptation. No matter what you face and how, in fact, how far you've got into it before you've done the thing, there are avenues out that God provides. Uh, and in the story we're going to look at today, which is from Genesis 39 about Potiphar's wife and her struggle with temptation, you will see that she gets multiple outs from God through Joseph not to do the thing that she's being tempted to do with him. So actually, in that journey with temptation, we have lots and lots of doorways out. And it's best to get, take the first doorway and go really quickly, but there are subsequent doorways. And don't ever forget that as a Christian. 
If you're, if you're going down that journey of temptation, there are doorways out for you from God. The first one is the best one to take normally. And the last point, and this, if you imagine these five points as your bird spikes or your bird spines that are you know, helping you with your thought life, the Lord's Prayer asks us that we are not carried into temptation in the first place. So every day when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're saying to God, please don't let me be carried there at all. Don't even let me get into a situation where I'm in the cake shop wondering about the cream cakes. Take my feet far away from the cake shop, Lord. Don't let me go there. So when you pray that every day, God helps you set up your day so that you're not even going there. It says in the Lord's Prayer that it's, it's a Greek word, aspero, which means to be carried into. And it's that word from which we get the word ferry, actually, that you're carried somewhere. So when you're, when you're praying this in the Lord's Prayer, help me not to get into temptation, lead me not into temptation, you're asking the Lord, please don't carry me in the direction of where I'll be tempted. Keep me right out of temptation altogether. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? So these five little things, if you can imagine these as your bird spikes, be careful you don't fall. All temptations are common to everybody right across the planet. God puts limits on how much you can be tempted, so you can always resist it. You know you have the power in God because he's told you that. There's always a way out, and the Lord's Prayer asks that we're not even carried into temptation in the first place. So that's really helpful. So I, wanna, I want to set that out for you right from the beginning. That is your toolkit for navigating temptation. Uh, and if you just took that away today and really applied it, I'd be delighted. However, let's get into a worked example, because I think sometimes when we see these things worked through, it's really, really helpful. Um, now, in this story that we're sharing today, and you might want to jump to Genesis chapter 39 uh, in your Bibles or on your devices, we're going to look at it from a slightly different point of view. I don't know about you, but when you read the story of Genesis uh, and, and you go through particularly the story of Joseph, jo the story of Joseph is so well told. It's just an awesome story. You, you can't wait to see what happens next. And you identify with him so much. In fact, you know, there's a musical made about his life, isn't there? I mean, it's just such a compelling story. And I, I don't know about you, but when I read it, I identify with Joseph. I'm like, wow, you got sold into slavery. God, that's so unfair. And look, God's blessing you now. And wow, that's terrible. And then it's a roller coaster ride. But you find yourself with Joseph all the way, don't you? Well, I do. I'm just like really kind of rooting for him. I'm so delighted when he gets out of prison. I'm so delighted when he's appointed to second in command and does all this great stuff. And that is testimony to the power of the storytelling from the Genesis writer. And it, he, it's meant to be that way. You're supposed to feel that way. But what can happen is we miss the, the story from other people's points of view. And I want to share the story of uh, Joseph and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, but I want to open your minds a little bit to their perspective, from the perspective of Potiphar and his wife. So we're not thinking so much about Joseph, because Joseph kind of acquits himself really well in this story. He does all the right things. He's not the one struggling with temptation. It's Potiphar's wife who is struggling Let's look through and see how she navigates this or how they navigate it and from their point of view. So read with me from Genesis 31, uh, uh, sorry, Genesis 39 from verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guards brought, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. 
When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From that time he put him in charge of his, from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, we read that and we go, wow, Joseph, you are blessed. You are bringing such great things to your master. You are, you are bringing the favor of God upon this household in, in these fields and in this, in this uh, space for this family and for, and for all their associated people. And we're like, wow, great. And we, we move on and we get straight into the story about Potiphar's wife's temptation, but I want to draw your attention to something. Here's a little clue in the story that things maybe aren't quite what they seem. That last sentence there is an absolute giveaway that this marriage is not as healthy as it should be between Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. It says, verse 6, he left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, if I was Potiphar's wife, I'd be pretty irritated by that write-up. I'm just putting it out there. Like, wouldn't you feel wounded by that? So I've, I'm married to you. You're a captain of the guard. You're really successful with Pharaoh. You're off on these campaigns. We've got everything all sorted and wonderful, and, and there's confidence around the place. But you're never here. And the writer of Genesis describes you as that you're concerned with your food. Oh, man, that's not a great relationship. What's going on there? There's an emptiness going on here. That's what's going on here. And this is where the be careful you don't fall really applies because they're in a confident position, it would seem, wouldn't it? They've got wealth. They can buy, they can buy Joseph and get him to work for them. They've got fields. They've got a household. And I'd put it to you that perhaps they've got a Range Rover Evoque in the drive, you know? And nothing against Range Rover Evokes. I'm really good with that. But this is the kind of vibe, okay? This is what they've got. But I'm suggesting that perhaps this marriage, although it looks great and it's got wealth and there's status and all the rest of it, there's something not right. And you notice later on in the account that she has to wait for him to get home to show him the... the, the the robe, and those of you who know the story who know where this is going, she has to wait for him to come home. I would suggest that it's an absent marriage. The conditions aren't necessarily quite right. Now, I'm taking a little bit of license with the text. It doesn't explicitly say that, but this seems to be the picture. Um, and she, she's kind of left alone with a handsome, successful servant who is there every day. You know, temptation is sometimes about proximity, isn't it? Husband's away, and yet all day long, I have to look at this fit slave who's successful at what he does. And he's talking to me, and he's spending time with me. And, you know, there are three T's uh, to build relationship in a marriage. Uh, talk, time, and touch. And I think Potiphar's wife is getting the talk and the time, and she's thinking about the touch. So I think it's going on. Those are the conditions. Those are the conditions. And I, they might have been thinking that they were standing firm, that couple, but she isn't really. And they're about to fall. And I want to ask you today, what are your conditions like? 
Are they all kind of super sorted on the outside? But is there an emptiness on the inside? And are there needs that you're trying to fill in ungodly ways? Because that is the, the, the growth area for, for temptations. That is the moss growing on your wall from the bird droppings of your thoughts. Because you've got some unmet needs, and actually things look great on the surface, but they're not so great inside. And it takes a level of humility and courage to acknowledge that. But hey, I'm prompting you to do that, and please go ahead and, and look at that and be brave about it. Maybe your conditions are not quite what you present in church on a Sunday or in the office during the week. Then we get into the realm of unchecked daydreams. Joseph was well-built and handsome. You know, and millions of people who, as we've said, momentarily fancy somebody else, but they nip it in the bud. But the conditions in Potiphar's household were that that wasn't so possible. You know, fire, it says that for fire to take hold, it needs three things. It needs heat, uh, it needs fuel, and it needs oxygen. Now, Joseph was hot. Okay, he was. The fuel was Potiphar's wife's thought life, and the oxygen was the time. And it's only going to be a matter of time before that combusts, and it does. That's what's happening here. Now, we have some further spiritual bird spikes that we can call on in time of need when our daydreams are getting a little bit too strong. Did you know, just as an aside, your daydreams are what you worship? Actually, I'll just drop that grenade into your life. <laughs> you didn't know that, did you? When you catch yourself off guard daydreaming, that is what you worship. That's, you're going to need to process that for a few months, I reckon, some of you. Really, seriously, what you daydream about is what you actually worship. And so we need to arrest our daydreams sometimes. And those, those five bird spikes I gave you at the beginning, they're great, but let's have some more. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this, we take every thought captive to Christ. Amen? And we, we are evaluating our thoughts. We're not passive people in the passenger journey of our thoughts. We take captive our thoughts and we look at them, and we analyze them. We go, are they godly? No, they're not. Out the window they go. That's what we do. We take, captive, we take our thoughts captive. Philippians 4, 8 says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. The Bible directs us to take our thought life and mold it around good stuff and not let it daydream about immoral stuff. Uh, Jordan and Ellie had a chance to go on a conference recently uh, for young leaders in Elim, and uh, they had a guest speaker, a guy called Rob Parsons, who leads Care for the Family. Rob's a great guy, really, really great guy. His ministry is fantastic. In fact, we use some of the resources in our marriage stuff for our married couples here in BCC. Brilliant speaker, great ministry. And he was speaking to them about this issue of temptation, and he said, the way to deal with temptation is always within the first 10 seconds. Always deal with it as soon as you can straight away and get it out. Don't dwell on it. And I think there's a huge amount of wisdom there. Something else I notice, and this leads into the daydream thing, the unchecked daydreams, we don't really see that Potiphar's wife is bristling with godly purpose, do we? Well, we don't, do we? She's just kind of there being tempted. And I want to say to us that if we've got godly purpose in our lives and a big thing that we're trying to build... That tends to help minimize the struggle with temptation. If we've got a really large thing going on in our lives that we're driving towards in God, 
that kind of helps us manage some of those difficult things where we're bored or idle and we don't have that. You know, managing temptation is not letting the little things of right now derail the big things that we're trying to build for tomorrow. So how are you arresting your daydreaming? What do you genuinely daydream about? It's those times where you feel like you're totally off duty in your head. That's what you really worship. It's a bit of a scary thought, isn't it? Then we get into looking longingly. Looking longingly. Uh, let me just read what it says there. Um, now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. After some time, time's going on here, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph. I think looking is a big trigger for temptation. I think we look around us, and we want stuff, and when we see it, we want it more, and then we dwell on it, and then we want it more, and then it feeds our thought life, and then we look for it, and then when we see it, it feeds our thought life, and then we look for it again, and, we, and it just gets into a recursive loop. And suddenly we're like spinning on this thing, and it's becoming an obsession. I had a look through the big passages on temptation briefly, just to give you a quick uh, heads up. And I noticed the theme that looking is key in all of them. I bet some of you thought I might, was, I might speak about David and Bathsheba today. I thought, no, I'm not going to do that, but I will share one verse from that story. Uh, one evening, David got up, got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. He, he looked. It's a looking thing. Temptation seems to be primarily around a looking thing. Let's jump back to Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, when the original temptation ha- occurred and when we had the fall of man. Uh, the woman saw, saw, she looked, that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. She saw it with her eyes. One more. Jesus gets tempted when the devil takes him and shows him, uh, takes him up a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, Jesus, look at what you could have now if you worship me rather than going through the cross and doing it your way and the godly way with all the ministry that you need to do. Look, this is what I'm showing you. And so a little, a little pointer for all of us is what are we looking at that is feeding our temptation? Let's be really careful with that. Then she goes, Potiphar's wife then goes into words. So far up to now, this has all been a storm in her head, but now it spills over and it becomes verbal. She's put it out there. She says it. She actually reveals something of her mental landscape to Joseph Um, She says it. She says, sleep with me. It becomes verbal. And she's crossed a point there. She made a decision based on a thought life. Then she gets an opportunity not to follow through with it, but she ignores it. This is a case of, I had a chance not to take this uh, step, but I'm going to take this step. God's opened a door for me so that I can run away from this this possibility or this problem, but I'm now going to stay here. I'm not opening that door, and I'm not running through it. Joseph opens a door for her in his response, and the the door that's being opened is, um, Potiphar's wife, you now need to exit from this connection because it's unhealthy. And in fact, Joseph speaks out over her. Um, Joseph's first response to her is quite interesting, and it should have been her way out. Should have been her way out. He says, it says this, He refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with, uh, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything under his house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority. 
No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. So how could I do this immense evil and how could I sin against God? That's the doorway from Potiphar's wife's point of view to go, oh, wow, yeah, actually, I am about to embark on something really ungodly. I am so sorry that I let that slip out, Joseph. That's really ungodly. You're right. Would you please wipe that off my record? I'm so sorry I said that. I shouldn't have said that. That was wrong. And she should have walked away and turned away and no more should have been said. That was the, the way out, although late in the day. Her way out should have been in her thought life way before that, in the first 10 seconds. But she still got given a way out. But she doesn't decide to do that. She doesn't take the way out that Joseph gives her. And, and, and look at how Joseph puts a godly thing back into it. He says, this is not right. This is a wicked thing. He, he makes it the correct perspective again, because she's lost perspective by being buried in the temptation. But she persists. She keeps on asking him. And actually what happens is he keeps on saying no, and actually God keeps on giving her multiple ways out. So this isn't like really unfair. It's like, no, you've had a bad thought life. You've given voice to it. And now you've had multiple opportunities not to do what you're doing. And God works like that with, the, with all of us, actually. You know, temptation is a hard deal sometimes, but God always provides ways out. My encouragement to you is to take the first one and do it really quick. But as you go down the line, there will be more. And do take them, even though it gets harder as you go along. Take them. She keeps on asking him. He, he keeps on saying no. She keeps on ignoring that. And then she takes it to another level. She takes it to isolation. She sets up the isolation. Now, it says in the story that it so happens that the, the servants weren't there. I don't believe that. I think she set that up. I think it was like, oh, I'll just wait until there's a time when they're not around, and then like, yeah, I'll go for it then. She's plotting now. This is no accident. She uses a situation, and she gets in there with the next step. Uh, and so isolation is another key aspect around temptation, which means in this story, and so the opposite is true, which is that if we set up accountability, if we set up the, the possibility of people looking in on our lives and being connected and accountable and, and relational, that really helps suppress temptation right down. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm someone that has a thing called covenant eyes on my devices, on my phone, on my computer, so that my, my minister mates can see what I've been looking at online. And it takes the whole thing of what I'm looking at online off the table. I've done it for, oh, 15 years now, ever since they first launched the software. And it's brilliant because I never, ever get into that space of looking, looking at the things I shouldn't be looking at. Because they can see what I'm looking at. And I'm going, oh, yeah, I don't want you looking at what I'm looking at. And I'm going to keep my activities pure. Because there's an accountability around that. And so if you're someone that struggles with what you look at, maybe it's time to open that out to a Christian brother or a Christian sister and say, hey, can you help me with this? And let me show you what I'm looking at so that I'm accountable. Don't be isolated. Keep accountable in front of people. Now, then Potiphar's wife, she takes it to the next level. It's been in the thought life. It's gone into words. It's gone into repeated words. It's gone into persistence. And now she's gone into isolation. And then, last of all, she takes action. She actually acts on her thoughts. And she grabs him. And then the, the cloak is left there, isn't it? And he runs off. That is an anatomy or a heat map of temptation for you from, uh, from Potiphar and Potiphar's wife's point of view. 
And we miss it sometimes because we're reading the story from Joseph's point of view. But it's so, so helpful for us to see what's going on in relation to temptation. Now, the aftermath of all of this is that it's prison for Joseph. Now, I want to say there's a book by a guy called Eric Byrne called Games People Play. And there are three levels of game. uh, And and games, they don't, when he uses the word game, it's not like, you know, a game of chess and it's fun. It's a kind of a level of game playing in order to get things out of situations. It's, it's when you're not being straight in your relationships about stuff, perhaps you're being a bit manipulative. And so a, a light game might be something like, oh, it's cold in here. And what you're basically saying to your colleagues in the office is, will someone shut the window? But rather than saying, Chloe, could, would you mind shutting the window? You're going, oh, it's cold in here. And you're playing a little game. Now, that's a mild game, and nobody's going to get hurt with that. It's kind of fun. In fact, loads of us do that kind of thing all the time, don't we? We play these mild games. That's what happens. Then there's intermediate games, and intermediate games are a little bit more got an edge to them. They're like when you're you know, perhaps out in Birmingham at night, and it's half past 11, and your workmates, let's say there's a group of blokes, and they've gone out for a, um, you know, a curry, and then a group of your workmates are saying, so, so, so what? You're not going to come to the club then? What kind of bloke are you? And there's a kind of a, an edge to that, and there's a joshing and a jesting that goes on, but there's an edge to that game. That edge is, oh, I'm suddenly going to get sucked in by the crowd, and I'm going to go somewhere where I I shouldn't go. That that game is an intermediate game, because there's a a price you might be stepping into and paying there that you you never really wanted to pay. And then we get into hard games, and hard games are awful. And Eric Byrne, in his book, says, hard games always end in court, hospital, prison, or death. Oh, my God, that's awful. And yes, there are some people out there who are playing hard, they're playing hardball. They want to take you down. And Potiphar's wife plays a hard game with with Joseph because he rejects her. And if you think of the psychology of this, it's kind of almost wired to go this way because she's supposed to be in a position above him. He is supposed to be the slave, and yet he is exercising way more freedom than she is. He is living within godly boundaries, and she doesn't want to. And she finds that that's really objectionable, and she then goes, right, I'm going to go for you. I'm going to take you down. I'm going to take you out. And this is, this is where this story has got a really nasty side to it. And temptation can end in something really, really nasty. You know, that's why I opened with the illustration of the, of the kind of the bird poo, because it's an unpleasant sort of thought and an illustration, but it kind of sits in your mind. You think, yeah, do I want those kind of outcomes in my life if I'm giving in to temptation? I'm going to ask our worship team just to return back up uh, and come and join me. Thank you, worship team. Having really tried to kind of analyze temptation and take you on a bit of a journey with, with it and give you some illustrations and some tools to help you with it, I do want to say to you at the end of this, this kind of message, God honors and protects Joseph in the end. He does. Now, Joseph pays the price for someone else's failure to stay within boundaries, for someone else's lapses with temptation, repeatedly so. He really pays the price for that. But in the end, God doesn't let him get too damaged. He pays the price. He goes to prison. He's languishing there. We know the story, and eventually he gets out of prison. But God, in the long run, will protect you even if you're the victim of someone else's unfair behavior towards you because of their temptation fail, God is going to protect you. He's going to honor you. He's going to look after you in the long run. She will stand, BCC.
Let's all stand. It's a hard message to hear today, isn't it? This is one of those messages where I feel, yeah, you kind of just need to hear this and we just need to get this done because it's so important. (laughs) It's a hard one. But I hope it's helpful to you and you've seen it laid out. You get it and that you understand it. We're going to sing and then I'm going to come back with three really brief ways that you can respond and take some action around temptation and then we're going to close in prayer. Let's sing. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, team.